What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you know? There's evidence suggesting that Resident Evil originally featured messages on the walls, similar to the ones seen in Portal and Left 4 Dead. One clear example is from an early demo build of the game, where a message is scrawled in blood on the wall in one of the corridors. It roughly translates as, It hurts to breathe. Someone please stop this pain. This was over a decade prior to the popularization and critically acclaimed use of in-game text for storytelling in Valve games. Another interesting part of Resident Evil's development is that it was initially conceived as a first-person shooter, but a different playstyle was adopted instead, inspired by Alone in the Dark. According to Resident Evil's director Shinji Mikami, it wasn't technically good enough. Development of Resident Evil 2 began one month after completion of the original Resident Evil and was scheduled for a March 1997 release. As the game approached completion, Capcom felt unsatisfied with the product. Rather than releasing a game that they were unhappy with, they made the tough decision to entirely rework the game. This scrapped version of the project was later dubbed Resident Evil 1.5. Although it followed the same basic outline as Resident Evil 2, 1.5 had multiple drastic differences. One difference that's instantly noticeable is that although Leon is still in the game, Claire Redfield is nowhere to be seen. Instead, we have Elza Walker, a motorcycle enthusiast attending university. Elza was changed into Claire Redfield, Chris Redfield's sister, to make a stronger connection with the first game. And although Claire and Leon's paths crossed, Leon and Elza's paths did not. The game's graphics were also thoroughly revised. Environments were remodeled to look more artistic and interesting. The 3D models received a boost in polygons, but at the expense of having fewer zombies on screen. There were also some drawbacks. 1.5's character models physically changed to show damage from zombies, as well as for costumes. You could also equip gear, such as clothing that raised defense or let you carry more items. The story was originally very conclusive, concerning some developers. This seemed to be one of the main reasons for the drastic change in direction. The ending was altered to be more open-ended, which allowed for future installments in the franchise. The delay was the reason Resident Evil Director's Cut shipped with a playable preview disc of Resident Evil 2. It was Capcom's way of apologizing to the players for the late release. Devil May Cry actually started out as Resident Evil 4. 
The project began sometime between 1998 and the year 2000 as a PlayStation 2 title and had Resident Evil 2 director Hideki Kamiya leading the project. Kamiya's focus for Resident Evil 4 seemed to be on fast, stylish combat and the coolness of the protagonist. This new direction is what led to the departure of fixed camera angles in-game, as the fixed perspective limited what could be done in a more action-oriented game. Sometime during development, Shinji Mikami felt that the game had strayed too far from the series' survival horror roots. He took action and managed to convince Kamiya and the rest of his team that the game would be better off as an original title. This new game was unveiled as Devil May Cry in November 2000. In Resident Evil 5's downloadable mission Lost in Nightmares, if you try leaving the mansion through the front door three times, you'll be able to play through the entire mission using the fixed camera perspective of the original three games, instead of the default third-person view. And one last piece that might give you some insight into the minds of Resident Evil 4's developers. If Leon looks up when underneath Ashley during escort sections of the game, it will trigger a dialogue that's only used for this event. Oh, you pervert! Did you know? Resident Evil was originally commissioned as a spiritual successor to a Capcom game for the Nintendo Famicom called Sweet Home. Sweet Home was based on a Japanese horror movie of the same name and was never released outside of Japan due to the game's graphic content. Sweet Home featured zombies, elaborate puzzles, scattered notes revealing plot elements, and most notably, door-opening loading sequences, all of which were later found in Resident Evil. Much like Sweet Home, early concepts for Resident Evil involved the use of paranormal enemies instead of living creatures. However, this was later changed to zombies inspired by the renowned horror director George A. Romero and his movies such as Dawn of the Dead. Capcom actually hired Romero to direct a series of live-action commercials for Resident Evil 2 and later signed a deal with Universal Studios to have George Romero write and direct the Resident Evil live-action movies. Romero stated in an official appearance in Universal Studios' Talk City that he had his secretary play through the entire game while he took notes of the experience. When Romero's script was finished and turned in, Capcom actually disapproved of it. In an interview with Electronic Gaming Monthly, Capcom producer Yoshiki Okamoto explained that Romero's script wasn't good, so Romero was fired. The job was then given to Paul Anderson, resulting in the current Resident Evil movie series we have today. An early draft of Resident Evil's story had two supporting characters that are absent from the final version of the game. Gelzer, a large muscular man with a cybernetic eye, and Dewey, a supposed comic relief character modeled after Eddie Murphy. Though these characters were cut, the name Dewey was given to an unrelated member of Stars named Edward Dewey. It's likely that the concepts for Gelzer and Dewey were reused in Capcom's later survival horror game Dino Crisis with the characters Gale and Rick, who both greatly resemble Gelzer and Dewey in appearance and personality. Biohazard, the Japanese version of Resident Evil, was actually meant to have Japanese voice acting for the dialogue, but this was cut and replaced with English voices. In a publication by Capcom called The True Story Behind Biohazard, series creator Shinji Mikami stated, We also recorded Japanese voices, not just English ones. They were discarded because they were really lame. Ironic though, considering that Resident Evil's voice acting is considered some of the worst in the history of gaming, and was actually featured in the 2008 Guinness World Records Gamers Edition for the worst game dialogue ever. Throughout development of the series, several Resident Evil projects were halted by Capcom before they were finished. After the initial release of Resident Evil, the game was ported to the Game Boy Color. The port was announced in 1999 as a direct conversion of the PlayStation game, and was being developed by UK developer Hot Gen Studios. Even though around 90% of the game had already been completed, Capcom cancelled the game in 2000, stating, We're not confident that the product would have made both consumers and Capcom happy. In 2012, the game's ROM was leaked online and made available to the public by a collector from AssemblerGames.com. Another cancelled Resident Evil game was a spin-off known as Biohazard Dash. In an interview in the Japanese magazine Genki PlayStation, 
Capcom producer Yoshiki Okamoto had this to say about the game. The starting point of the scenario is that there exists a room underneath the Tyrant's incubation. The story of the game unfolds three years after the events of Biohazard 1. The characters are different, and this time, infected plants have attacked the inhabitants of Raccoon City. The victims have changed partially into plants. It's as if everyone is slowly transforming into some plant. Biohazard Dash was set to use many of the same areas from the first game, but with spiderwebs and cracks to indicate that time had passed. Ultimately though, the game was cancelled to direct more focus on the development of Resident Evil 2. Capcom's Onimusha series was created after the cancellation of yet another Resident Evil game. Sengoku Biohazard was set in the Resident Evil universe and somehow involved ninjas. The game would have been structured much like the original Resident Evil, but would have taken place inside of a ninja house rather than a mansion. Yoshiki Okamoto revealed the details about this game in an interview with the Japanese magazine Dengeki Nintendo. The ninja house was to contain a series of booby traps as environmental hazards, and battles were to be fought using a katana and shuriken. Other concepts included hidden doors, falling ceilings, scrolls and ninja magic, and many other ninja techniques. Many of the ideas conceived in the planning stages of Sengoku Biohazard, though, did eventually make their way into Onimusha. Multiple references to the British rock band Queen and their album Made in Heaven can be found scattered within several different Resident Evil games. Chris Redfield's unlockable costume in the first game features a design with the text Made in Heaven written on the back. This design again appears as a default costume for his sister Claire Redfield in Resident Evil 2. Additionally, the original Made in Heaven jacket can be seen hanging above Chris's office at the police station in Resident Evil 2 and 3. In Code Veronica, the back of Claire's jacket reads Let Me Live, the title of the third track on the Made in Heaven album. And finally, Billy Cohen from Resident Evil Zero has a tattoo on his arm that reads Mother Love, the name of the fourth track from Made in Heaven. Several Resident Evil games have hidden references to previous games in the series. In Resident Evil Uprising for mobile phones, a sticky note can be found in the police department describing a recipe for a Jill sandwich. This is a reference to Resident Evil 1, where Jill is almost crushed but is saved by Barry Burton. Barry then says, You are almost a Jill sandwich. This event was referenced again in Capcom's Dead Rising, in which a restaurant called Jill's Sandwiches can be found in the mall. One of the series' most unusual Easter eggs, though, can be found in Wesker's office. If the player searches Wesker's desk 50 times, an item can be found called Film D, which when developed in the dark room, will show a picture of Rebecca Chambers in athletic clothing holding a basketball. Did you know? Capcom considered using traditional tank controls and fixed camera angles for the remake of Resident Evil 2 to please hardcore fans of the original. According to Capcom Europe's COO Stuart Turner, the team ultimately decided against it, saying, The world has moved on and these players have changed. And if we did introduce old school mechanics, these fans might play it and actually decide it's not what they wanted after all. Nevertheless, Capcom were unsure how fans would react to the changes leading up to E3 2018. Producer of 2019's Resident Evil 2, Siyoshi Kanda, admitted that many of the original games' uses of hiding scares just off-screen wouldn't be possible with the game's over-the-shoulder camera. However, this only pushed the team to explore other creative means of scaring gamers instead. Kanda explained, So you can be walking down the corridor of the police station. There's smoke, the corridor twists, and you still can't see ahead, even with the third-person camera. We can definitely create an atmosphere of unease, where you still don't know what's coming around the next corner. Meanwhile, one advantage the team discovered involved the use of sound. While the constantly shifting perspective of fixed camera angles makes surround sound unfeasible, this isn't an issue with an over-the-shoulder camera where the player is always right next to the character. 
Therefore, using Capcom's recently built dynamic mixing 3D soundstage, the team pushed 360-degree binaural technology to new heights, allowing the game to modify sound effects in real time relative to the player's position. The developers have aimed to make the remake nostalgic while keeping things fresh at the same time. Capcom reasoned that the game's scares would lose all of their effectiveness if gamers could simply recall where they all were from playing the original game. To combat this, everything from the layout of the police station has been subtly altered to keep players both new and old on their toes, while still paying respect to the original game's vision. Other changes were made necessary due to the game's greater graphical fidelity. For example, the team quickly realized that while the oversized shoulder pads on Leon's police uniform worked fine in the original's low-polygon graphics, they looked off in the remake's photorealistic art style. The remake's director, Kazunori Kadoi, stated that Ada Wong's classic red dress was dropped in favor of a trench coat for similar reasons. Kadoi told Eurogamer, It goes back to the same thing of what would look natural to be wandering around in a photorealistic environment in. I think wandering around in that dress, just getting on with your job as a spy, probably doesn't look as realistic and believable as we want in this new game. One major element the developers set out to improve in the remake was updating the game's zombies. Capcom feared that the original Resident Evil 2 zombies wouldn't be nearly as scary as they originally were in 1998, thanks to the proliferation of zombies in pop culture over the decades since the game's release. The team spent a great deal of time reworking the zombies, which included creating numerous different walking animations. They calculated the timing of when zombies would reach out to grab the player, perfecting their biting and gnawing animations, and built a real-time damage system enabling zombies to react where they are shot. However, the developers were cautious not to remove too much of what made Resident Evil 2 a favorite among fans. For instance, while some of the team felt the alligator boss wouldn't fit in the remake's darker tone, Kadoi knew they owed it to fans to make it work somehow. The team worked hard to make the alligator more believable, paying close attention to everything from its overall design to the weight of its movements. Producer Yoshiaki Hirabayashi said the team reiterated on the alligator again and again until they were finally able to make it properly fit the grittier world of the remake. The team was also careful to maintain the game's original 1990s time frame, and the environment artists avoided accidentally putting anything in the background that wouldn't exist in the 90s. Furthermore, while Claire Redfield originally rode a generic motorcycle, the team worked alongside Harley-Davidson to turn Claire's bike into a 1998 Harley-Davidson night train for the remake. Conda stated, I'm not saying everyone who plays will say, oh, that's a night train. Like, you may or may not be aware of that. But that's a detail that really rings true for people who are familiar with motorcycle history. That's the kind of detail we can use to really push the idea that this game was happening 20 years ago rather than now. Interestingly, this motorcycle has a nod to the original game as well. The vehicle's license plate is J2198, a nod to Resident Evil 2's original release date of January 21st, 1998. Additionally, the developers went out of their way to compose their own 90s grunge rock-style song inspired by the likes of Pearl Jam and Nirvana for the remake's credit sequence. That's not the only design element that took from the 90s, either. Claire Redfield's Elza Walker alternative costume has a surprising amount of history behind it. While Claire otherwise kept many of Elza's characteristics, she was altered to simply be a motorcycle enthusiast rather than an outright racer. The inclusion of an Elza Walker costume led some fans to speculate that some elements of Resident Evil 1.5 would be worked into the remake. Kanda denied this, saying, No, we really wanted to pay respect to the game that actually saw the light of day. We wanted to pay tribute to the game that most players actually came into contact with and try out. Having said that, we did take the Elza costume and made that kind of an easter egg present to fans DLC. So that was something where we kind of said, alright, let's take this. Despite Conda's statement, many ideas from Resident Evil 1.5 did end up being in the remake. 
Several elements in the remake are taken from original concept art, such as Ada Wong and Claire's default costumes, and even the idea of Tyrant wearing a hat. Other ideas lifted from the 1.5 build are the RPD building shutter system and the incrementally upgradable game inventory. Many details about the game were discovered on January 11, 2019, when Capcom published a special time demo of the game that let players explore a section of the game for 30 minutes, but only for a single time. The demo was played 2 million times in its first week, and contained some interesting secrets in its own right. The demo revealed several easter eggs in the game which referenced both the franchise and the series developer. The base of the bronze statue in the RPD waiting room has a plaque on it with the phrase, We Do It. This is a reference to the video put out by Capcom in 2015 to announce that they were officially working on a Resident Evil 2 remake. Also within the RPD is a desk for Rita Phillips. This is a nod to Resident Evil Outbreak File 2, where Rita managed to escape the RPD building. The game also specifically references Rita's escape from Raccoon City. The goddess statue in the RPD building's main hall has been moved and redesigned to function similarly to how it did in Resident Evil Outbreak File 2. The means of completing the statue's puzzle have also been changed from requiring one item to needing three. Speaking of officers, the original STARS team photo from Resident Evil 2 and 3 can be seen in the remake as well, hidden in some development fluid in the RPD's dark room. There are even references outside of the RPD. In the original Resident Evil 2, if the player walks as close as possible to the gate outside the RPD, the camera will switch to reveal several zombies at the gate. This small detail was also included in the remake. Because the remake also shares its engine with Resident Evil 7, several assets from the seventh game were reused in some way. The small desk mannequin in the third floor of RPD is a shrunken version of the full-sized mannequins in Resident Evil 7. There's also a reused electrical box, some table flowers, and a grandfather clock. Interestingly, even some of the text scrawled on the wall is from RE7, such as Jack Baker's message. Another amusing reused asset is an issue of a magazine. The issue talks about the original outbreak in Raccoon City that took place 16 years or so before Resident Evil 7, which is a clear nod to Resident Evil 2. This made sense in RE7, but in the context of Resident Evil 2, the magazine would have come from 16 years in the future. Did you know? Capcom was so impressed with director Hideki Kamiya's work on Resident Evil 2 that the company assigned Kamiya to direct Resident Evil 3 as well. This early version of Resident Evil 3 was set to star Hunk chasing down a sample of the G-Virus on a luxury cruise liner. However, after hearing news of Sony's much more powerful PlayStation 2 launching at the turn of the millennium, Kamiya decided to ditch the PlayStation 1 and turn his attention towards the next generation console. Kamiya stated, I think Resident Evil 2 represents everything I would be able to achieve for a survival horror game on the PlayStation. My vision for the next game was to make something brand new and more provoking. As a result, I decided to make Resident Evil 3 for the PlayStation 2. Afterwards, another Resident Evil game was greenlit for Sega's Dreamcast. Although Capcom intended the game to be a follow-up to Resident Evil 2's storyline, the company decided against naming the game Resident Evil 3 and gave it the subtitle Code Veronica instead. Yoshiki Okamoto, Capcom's general manager at the time, stated, The idea at the time was to keep numbered games on Sony systems and use different names for games made for Sega and Nintendo. However, Capcom became nervous that Kamiya's Resident Evil 3 would take too long to develop, especially with the ever-growing number of survival horror games hitting the market. Capcom quickly decided they should act fast to keep the lead, and greenlit another Resident Evil game for the PS1, which became known internally as Resident Evil 1.9. 
While Resident Evil 1 and 2 were huge projects with big budgets and longer development cycles, Capcom had no such luxuries with this next entry. Since a new console generation was quickly approaching, Capcom demanded that 1.9 be completed in a single year before the PS1 became irrelevant. To make matters worse, many Resident Evil staff members were committed to other bigger next-gen projects, so 1.9's team was largely staffed by less experienced employees and freelancers. Capcom turned to Kazuhiro Aoyama, a system planner for the first two Resident Evil games, to direct 1.9. Meanwhile, series writer Noboru Sugimura was busy with other projects, so Aoyama needed a new writer to take the reins. Director of the original Resident Evil and producer of Resident Evil 2, Shinji Mikami, took a chance and hired Yasuhisha Kawamura for the job. This decision surprised even Kawamura, who had no experience writing for video games. In fact, Kawamura's only writing experience at the time was a novelization of a Battle Angel Alita manga series that failed to take off. To make matters worse, Kawamura fumbled the job interview, or so he thought. Kawamura recalled, They first asked me what kind of game I wanted to make. I said, I want to make an Exorcist-themed Resident Evil game, or a Yakuza-themed Resident Evil with katana swords. I looked back at how I behaved after my interview and I assumed that I was disqualified. Later, I found out I was offered the position. As luck would have it, Kawamura, a Kempo enthusiast, picked up a martial arts magazine on his way to the job interview and brought it with him. Mikami noticed the magazine and asked Kawamura about it during the interview. As it turned out, Mikami practiced Kempo during his college years, which helped win him over. The name Resident Evil 1.9 reflected Aoyama and Kawamura's idea for the game to be a prequel to Resident Evil 2 rather than a sequel. Originally, the story was planned to follow three mercenaries hired... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. ...by the Umbrella Corporation and would lead into the zombie apocalypse of Raccoon City, ending moments before Leon and Claire arrive on the scene. This direction was partially made out of necessity, as it allowed the team to freely reuse Resident Evil 2's game engine and setting to save on time and resources. However, Aoyama didn't want to simply rest on Resident Evil 2's laurels and set out to enhance the gameplay however he could. Aoyama had personally directed Resident Evil 2's The Fourth Survivor Mode, a timed gauntlet minigame where players rushed through a horde of zombies with limited supplies, and sought to create an even more action-packed game with 1.9. 
This called for various improvements, such as copious aggressive enemies, dodging mechanics, a quick 180 turn, and the ability to craft new ammo and different ammunition types. Aoyama also decided to cut the game back to only feature a single scenario rather than two. To make up for there being only a single campaign, item locations and puzzle solutions were randomized to give the game more replayability. Meanwhile, Kawamura took his idea a step further with the creation of the live selection feature, which gave players the ability to choose how the story played out at key sections of the game. Yet again, the team still needed to cut back more to release the game on time and within budget, so the number of bosses was drastically cut back to only two. However, its main boss, Nemesis, was given a much greater role to compensate, able to haunt players throughout the game. Interestingly, Nemesis was initially planned to be a blob-like creature, similar to the titular monster from the 1958 cult horror film The Blob, but it was ultimately reworked into the seemingly unstoppable tyrant we know today, inspired by the likes of the T-1000 from Terminator 2 Judgment Day. The next change in development came with a story revision in the concurrently made Resident Evil Code Veronica, which was planned to use Jill Valentine, but left her out in favor of a new character. With a fan-favorite character now up for grabs, the decision was made to put Jill into Resident Evil 1.9. The game's storyline now followed Jill's trek through Raccoon City, directly preceding the events of Resident Evil 2, before skipping ahead to the city's fate after Leon and Claire's escape. With this development, the game became internally dubbed Resident Evil 1.9 plus 2.1. However, the complicated name didn't stick, and the heads at Capcom decided to title the game Resident Evil 3 Nemesis in spring of 1999. Although the game had always been closely tied to Resident Evil 2, Capcom's decision to make the project the official successor caught Aoyama's team completely off guard. Aoyama stated, This game was supposed to be a spin-off, so I stuck to that framework during development. I was not expecting it to become Resident Evil 3 at all. Both Aoyama and Mikami feared the newly dubbed Resident Evil 3's smaller scope and focus on action would leave fans disappointed. However, with just a few months left before the game's scheduled release, and Capcom's unwillingness to delay the project any further, the team had no choice but to press on and expand the game as much and as quickly as possible. The game was originally set at the end of the clock tower after a final battle with Nemesis for an estimated playthrough time of two to three hours, but Okamoto demanded the game be lengthened. Old areas were expanded to feature new rooms and completely new areas, such as the Dead Factory and the Raccoon City Park, which were added during the game's last two months of development. This final crunch period was so intense that some of the developers' wives filed missing person reports after their husbands failed to return home. They were actually just toiling away at the office day after day to complete the game on time. In spite of the extreme workload, Kawamura still found the energy to come up with more additions to the game, such as the Mercenaries minigame, inspired by his personal favorite movie, 1987's The Running Man. Unfortunately, not every one of Kawamura's ideas were able to be finished in time, including a mode where players could control a zombified Brad Vickers. Aoyama's team held their breath as Resident Evil 3 hit store shelves, but despite their concerns, the game flew off store shelves. It managed to sell over a million copies within its first week in Japan, and sold exceedingly well in the West, too, ultimately selling 3.5 million copies worldwide. Although the game failed to beat its predecessor's sales, Resident Evil 3's low budget and quick development actually worked in Capcom's favor. In fact, Mikami estimates that Resident Evil 3 Nemesis was the most profitable game in the series up to that point.
Fast forward over 20 years, and Capcom confirmed rumors that a Resident Evil 3 remake was on track for an April 2020 release, just 14 months after the Resident Evil 2 remake. In fact, this marks the first time two mainline Resident Evil games have been released in such quick succession since the Resident Evil 1 remake and Resident Evil Zero were both released on the GameCube in 2002. This quick turnaround is thanks to the Resident Evil 3 remake being in development for a while. Producer Pete Fabiano explained, The Resident Evil 2 remake started development first, but one thing to clarify is that when we decided it was the right time to work on that game, we knew that we wanted to remake Resident Evil 3 as well because it would essentially tie up the trilogy. The Resident Evil 3 remake has been in development for three years itself, most of it directly alongside its predecessor. In fact, development of the Resident Evil 2 remake directly impacted the Resident Evil 3 team's work, especially in regards to Nemesis. Fabiano stated, Resident Evil 3 remake director Kiyohiko Sakata looked at what they had done with Mr. X in the Resident Evil 2 remake and was like, wait a minute, they've nemesisified him. So it was like taking it that one step further. We needed to make Nemesis ferocious and a real threat, and I think you'll feel that when you play the game. The Resident Evil 2 remake even had a small nod to the Resident Evil 3 remake following its official announcement in December 2019. As of the Resident Evil 2 Remake's 1.05 update, players can now find a note inside Kendo's gun shop which reads, Kendo, it seems like you've got your reasons for staying put, so I'll trust you to take care of yourself. Still, if things get worse and your other arrangements don't work out, you know where to find me. I'll do everything I can. Jill Valentine. Reading the letter grants the new achievement, Chasing Jill, which includes an image of Jill and Kendo that cannot be found otherwise within the game. Even though both games share an engine, the Resident Evil 3 Remake's development team didn't settle for just repeating what the Resident Evil 2 Remake achieved in 2019. For instance, zombies' movement speed, animations, attacks, and AI have all been overhauled, and the emergency dodge feature has been further improved. Raccoon City has been built from the ground up, including reimagined areas from the original game, as well as new areas including shops, sewer segments, and more to allow for much more exploration than before. The story and its cast have been reworked and expanded as well. Jill was given special attention in particular. Fabiano told IGN, Sakata really wanted to show that Jill is a character that has the wherewithal to get through all situations. At its core, it's survival horror, right? And we want to keep those elements in there and show that Jill can get through these really hard situations. Jill's new design, based on Russian model Sasha Zatova, was specifically created to reflect this design shift. Unfortunately, not everything from the original game will return in the remake. Namely, both the Mercenaries mode and the live selection feature have been axed. While the Mercenaries mode was replaced with the Resident Evil Resistance asymmetrical multiplayer game, cutting the live selection feature was a tough call, according to Sakata. Nevertheless, the decision was made in hopes of the game being a more cohesive experience than the original game. In today's episode, we'll be looking at secrets and easter eggs found throughout the Resident Evil series. A demo version of the first entry, known as the Biohazard Trial version, let players explore a limited portion of the Spencer Mansion. Several changes were made to the title after this demo version was created. One change was made to Chris, or more specifically, his character model. By exploring the demo's files, it's possible to take a look at Chris's textures. At first glance, the texture may appear to be what a player would see in the final game. However, looking at the unused sections of this texture, it's possible to find a crude doodle of Mega Man. This was likely made by a board designer and was removed from the final release. 
from version changes to some things that will never change. Brad Vickers, the pilot from the opening of Resident Evil, is famed for the cowardly abandoning of his team right at the start of the game. No! Don't go! Earning him the moniker Chicken Heart. However, as we've mentioned on Did You Know Gaming before, it seems Brad's tendency towards flight over fight couldn't keep him safe for long. Brad can be encountered as a zombie in Resident Evil 2 if the player makes their way to an underpass near the police station without picking up any items or weapons. By killing Brad, a key can be obtained to unlock alternative outfits for the player. Brad's demise is shown full force during the opening of Resident Evil 3, where he gets absolutely wrecked by the tentacle of Nemesis. Many in the Resident Evil community acknowledge that this potentially opens a plot hole in the games, as Brad couldn't become a zombie after the injury he sustained, as corpses don't reanimate if their brain is destroyed. For the Resident Evil 2 remake, Brad's reappearance was altered. During the player's first approach to the RCPD building, the underground passage from the original game is blocked off, making an encounter with the reanimated pilot not possible. However, during a player's second run of the game, this passage is opened. Inside, however, Brad is absent, that is, in his physical form. With the use of bolt cutters acquired later in the game, an additional area can be opened, where a poster can be found telling readers to apply to stars, with Brad being the literal poster boy of the team. This isn't the only easter egg added in a second playthrough. In Claire's second run, just before the encounter with the game's first liquor, it's possible to see a liquor whip past a window. Not only this, but when the player actually comes face to face with one in the next room, after waiting for a few moments, it will repeat the tongue action seen in the cutscene from the original Resident Evil 2. <gasps> Another throwaway featured in the remake can be found near the beginning of the game. Naturally, Leon's arrival to Raccoon City doesn't go to plan. In the midst of the horror, found in the west room above his new desk is a celebration banner. On closer inspection, there's a gap between the L and the E. Below the banner, on a different desk, it's possible to find an extra L that seems to have been removed. This is a reference to a spelling mistake made in the original game. A sign on Leon's desk says, Welcome Leon, with a double L. This same mistake can also be found in exactly the same place in Resident Evil 3. Also found in the remake is another throwback. Eagle-eyed fans have spotted what could be a reference to Nemesis, the titular villain of Resident Evil 3. In the West Shower Room, the player can find a gaping hole in the wall that's clearly been broken through. It's possible this was done by Nemesis, as the damage was done before Mr. X arrives on the scene. This is also backed up by the fact it leads straight to the star's office. On the topic of Nemesis, with the announcement of the Resident Evil 3 remake, Capcom re-released the demo of the Resident Evil 2 remake. However, this time removing the 30-minute time limit of the original demo and including an audible easter egg to the upcoming sequel. It's possible to hear Nemesis say his iconic STARS outside of the police station behind the surrounding walls. 
Skipping far ahead chronologically, Resident Evil 7 features a bunch of references to the games that came before it. Throughout the game, the player is able to find a series of videotapes that give hints as to how previous victims dealt with the Baker family. Every videotape starts with a numerical code of 00551-90009. Interestingly, this is the same as the product ID found on the US copies of Resident Evil Director's Cut for the PlayStation. On the subject of videotapes, the video Happy Birthday features a keypad with the sounds it makes being taken directly from the menu screen of Resident Evil 3. No, I, I actually envy you. Resident Evil 7 also features a ton of homages to the horror films that influenced it, one of which being the Evil Dead series. When fighting Jack in the basement, upon grabbing his chainsaw, he'll say, this is a reference to Evil Dead 2, when Ash similarly equips himself with a chainsaw and sawn-off shotgun. Groovy. A character's name could also be a reference to the 2013 remake of The Evil Dead. The protagonist's girlfriend not only shares an uncanny resemblance to the character Mia from Evil Dead, but they also have the same name. Speaking of unrelated franchises in a Resident Evil game, Resident Evil 3 has numerous pictures within the game that relate to real-world media. The majority of them can be found on a pinboard seen briefly at the Stagler gas station. Users of 4chan have worked out this board is covered in various photos from different films. Some of the films featured include Four Weddings and a Funeral, Back to the Future Part 3, A Home of Our Own, and Benny and June. A very strange inclusion is on a wall in the first room of the clock tower, where two photos can be seen beside the door. Bizarrely, these are of Alex Mack, the lead in The Secret World of Alex Mack, a teen show that aired on Nickelodeon between 1994 and 1998. From films seen within games to films hidden within games, 2012's Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City released to middling reviews. This non-canon what-if game was set between Resident Evil 2 and 3, and featured an elite team of Umbrella mercenaries sent into Raccoon City to cover up Umbrella's secrets. Having just worked on these SOCOM games, it seemed fitting that developer Slant 6 would work on this spin-off shooter which seems in line with the direction the franchise was heading in with Resident Evil 5 and 6. This wasn't the only big franchise that Slant 6 were getting their hands on. Oddly enough, hidden within the files of Operation Raccoon City are Star Wars loading screens and textures for what seems to be Star Wars Battlefront 3, which at the time, Slant 6 were rumored to be making. Did you know? Konami originally created Silent Hill as an attempt to conquer the American games market after the breakout success of Resident Evil, and planned to give the game a Hollywood-like atmosphere. The group developing the game, Team Silent, was comprised of staff who had underperformed during their previous projects, and were effectively outcasts from Konami's other development teams. Team Silent didn't know how to go about creating this Hollywood-like experience, and Konami gradually lost faith in the project. Eventually, Team Silent found themselves left to their own devices, and chose to ignore the Hollywood-like direction, and decided to make the game appeal to the emotion of the player instead. 
This change gave the team much more creative freedom, and led to them focusing their efforts on creating a fear of the unknown. The Town of Silent Hill is based on a mixture of Western literature and films, as well as depictions of the average rural American town. This is why streets in the game are often named after popular horror authors, such as Michael Crichton, Dean Koontz, and Richard Bachman, which is one of the pseudonyms used by Stephen King. This may also be why many of Silent Hill's environments are modeled after places in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Kindergarten Cop, which also took place in a small, picturesque town. One of the younger members of the team, Takeyoshi Sato, struggled to be appropriately credited for his work on Silent Hill. He was initially restricted to performing basic tasks, like font design, but also found the time to create 3D demos and teaching older staff members the fundamentals of 3D modeling. Despite all this, he was told he was not going to get credited for all this extra work. Sato then decided to approach the company's higher-ups with a demo movie he made and threatened to withhold this technical knowledge from the other staff members if he wasn't assigned to a 3D modeling job. His bosses had no choice but to give in to this demand, and he was finally given the job of character modeling. Sato chose to design the characters of Silent Hill as he was modeling them in 3D, rather than basing them on pre-existing illustrations. Each character in Silent Hill has their own distinct characteristics, but the game's protagonist, Harry Mason, was purposely left very neutral looking so the players could easily identify him and project themselves into the game world. Sato has also been quoted as saying that creating the skull shapes for the faces of the American cast was rather difficult, as he had no Caucasian co-workers to use for reference. Although Sato was largely responsible for the game's full-motion video sequences and characters, the higher-ups at Konami still didn't want to fully credit his work and planned to assign a visual supervisor to him. To prevent this, Sato volunteered to create the FMV sequences for the game entirely by himself. Over the course of two and a half years, he actually lived in the development team's office, as he had to render the sequences using the team's 150 computers after they had left work at the end of the day. Sato also said Silent Hill was intended to be a masterpiece rather than the initial sales-driven project Konami had planned, and that they opted for an engaging story that would persist over time, just like the literature the game paid homage to. Silent Hill struggled to pass censorship guidelines outside of Japan, and most of the trouble can be traced back to a single enemy, the Grey Child monsters were reworked twice so that the game could be approved for a North American release, and four times for the European release. The enemies were originally designed to resemble knife-wielding nude children. This was deemed too graphic, especially considering that the player could kill them. The North American version of the game features a faceless grey, somewhat larger version of the enemy with a modified head. In the European version of Silent Hill, however, the Grey Child monsters were completely replaced by the Mumbler monsters, which appear later in the North American version of the game. Despite the change to the EU version, the original Grey Child monster models can still be seen as transparent silhouettes when the player has reached the final hours of the game. The Silent Hill games are home to some of the most bizarre, fourth-wall-breaking moments in video game history. The original Silent Hill started it all with an alternate ending that fans have dubbed the UFO ending. A group of UFOs are seen in the sky and land shortly thereafter. Harry, who seems to be completely unfazed by the sight of extraterrestrials, asks them if they've seen his daughter. He is then shot and brought aboard their spacecraft, where they can be seen taking off into the sky. This alternate UFO ending can then be continued in the re-released versions of Silent Hill 2, where the game's protagonist, James Sunderland, is abducted by a group of aliens with the help of the first game's hero, Harry Mason. The UFO ending then continues into Silent Hill 3, where that game's heroine, Heather Mason, comes home to find her father sitting at the kitchen table having tea with an alien, as James Sunderland watches in the background. 
Taking a bit of a break from UFOs, there's another joke ending in Silent Hill 2 that has simply been called the dog ending, where James discovers that a cheery looking dog beyond a locked door has been controlling all of the events of the game with a large generic computer console. This is especially bizarre and out of place when you consider the rest of the game's ultra serious tone. It doesn't stop there though, as the dog and UFO endings then combine to form an alternate ending in Silent Hill Origins, where a UFO comes down from the sky and opens, revealing the alien and the dog from Silent Hill 2 wearing a space helmet. This joke is then expanded upon even further in Silent Hill Shattered Memories, where an alien, the dog, and James Sunderland all make an appearance. Silent Hill Shattered Memories, which is a reimagining of the original game, has a mechanic where the player can use a phone to call or send texts in-game. If you enter Konami's official customer support phone number into this virtual phone, you'll be connected to an operator who acknowledges that you're calling from Silent Hill and that you're beyond even their help. Our caller ID says that you're calling from Silent Hill. I regret to inform you that you're beyond even our help. Did you know? Contrary to popular belief, Silent Hill 4 didn't start out as an independent horror title that adopted the Silent Hill moniker to boost sales. Under the development name Room 302, the game was produced by a few members of Team Silent directly after Silent Hill 2 was completed and alongside Silent Hill 3. This was done so that the team could research new ideas and prevent the franchise from becoming stale while a more traditional sequel was developed alongside it. Producer Akira Yamaoka stated that the intention was to aim for a different theme for the Silent Hill series and to take a step forward into a new season or phase. He went on to say that the idea was to deal with the room as the central theme and question what happens if you're struck with fear in a familiar setting that is usually safe. Silent Hill Origins, a prequel title that released for the PlayStation 2 and PSP, originally started as a full-on remake of the very first Silent Hill game. While initially being planned by an unnamed Los Angeles developer, it eventually found its way to British studio Climax. Climax was tasked with salvaging the project, as the game hit several snags during production. It was decided to make Origins a prequel, as there were problems making the controls and camera systems work with the PSP's limited control inputs. Climax finished the game in a mere 12 months. That was fairly impressive when you consider that Climax threw away almost everything that the unnamed LA developer gave them. The only content which survived was The Butcher, and that was mainly due to Konami liking the character. Climax wasn't completely done with the franchise, however, as they were also responsible for 2009's Silent Hill Shattered Memories. Interestingly, the game's creation happened in direct contrast to Origins. Shattered Memories was intended to be a brand new chapter of the Silent Hill mythos, but then became a reimagining of the original Silent Hill. In the pre-production phase, the game carried the subtitle of Cold Heart, which alludes to the usage of ice and snow, rather than the rust and decay of previous entries in the series. The unused story followed a new female lead named Jessica Chambers, who is an overworked and emotionally fragile college student. While many of the original core gameplay mechanics carried over into Shattered Memories, Cold Heart's initial pitch featured survival mechanics where Jessica had to prevent her own frigid death by wearing warm clothing and seeking shelter indoors. The original pitch documents also indicated that improvised melee weapons, finishing moves, and dodges were considered early on in development. It's speculated that the lukewarm response fans had to the advanced combat mechanics of Homecoming just a year earlier led to this removal. That said, it's never been implicit stated by Climax or Konami why these cuts were made or how Cold Heart was turned into a reimagining of the first game. 
The release of Silent Hill Origins also marked a stark turning point for the franchise, as Silent Hill 5 was also in development for the PS3 and Xbox 360. Internal struggles between Konami and Team Silent arose around this time. In a 2006 interview, Akira Yamaoka stated that the team experimented with the idea of fear in daylight, and that they hoped to return to a more psychological approach employed by Silent Hill 2. However, none of these ideas came to fruition, and Silent Hill 5 emerged as Silent Hill Homecoming. Homecoming was ultimately developed by The Collective, a developer whose previous games included Buffy the Vampire Slayer and The Da Vinci Code. Matters got complicated partway through development as The Collective merged with Backbone Entertainment and later the remnants of Shiny Interactive, forming a new team called Double Helix Games. The fractured development cycle resulted in a rushed and buggy product that placed a heavy emphasis on combat, which seemed like an odd choice given the series' roots. Konami was also pitched two different versions of a Silent Hill game for the Nintendo DS and turned both of them down. The co-founder of Renegade Kid, Jules Watchem, recalls, They were kind enough to meet with us, but the meeting only lasted a few minutes and ended with their representative saying they wouldn't let a team like us handle the Silent Hill license. Their horror pitch would later be released as Dementium the Ward for the Nintendo DS. Dementium went on to receive positive reviews and proved that horror games could be surprisingly effective on the handheld. Several years later, and with a proven track record of portable titles, Renegade Kid approached Konami once more with a third-person demo running on the improved Dementium 2 engine, and were simply told once again by Konami that they had no interest in releasing Silent Hill on the system. By this point, Team Silent had long been dissolved, and most key developers responsible for Silent Hill had left Konami. Team Silent weren't the only aspect of Silent Hill to be mismanaged. Konami also lost the actual game assets for the earlier titles. This caused problems during the development of Silent Hill HD Collection. Producer Tom Hewlett told 1UP.com, We got all the source code that Konami had on file, which it turns out wasn't the final release version of the games. So during debug, we didn't just have to deal with the expected porting bugs, but also had to squash some bugs that the original team obviously removed prior to release, but we'd never seen before. We certainly had our hands full. I think at one point, Heather, the protagonist of Silent Hill 3, was blue. The port was largely slammed by fans and critics for its constant bugs and technical inconsistencies. The PS3 version was patched to alleviate some of the bugs, but the patch for the Xbox 360 version was completely cancelled due to technical issues and resources. The last couple of years have been tumultuous for Silent Hill, as the last officially released game for the franchise, Silent Hill Book of Memories, was a critically panned, multiplayer-focused dungeon crawler exclusively for the PlayStation Vita. Konami was then all set to reboot the franchise, beginning with the interactive horror teaser PT, which was a cleverly disguised demo for a future title simply called Silent Hills. The teaser was well received, and it seemed even more promising when it was announced that Hideo Kojima Guillermo del Toro and the Walking Dead star Norman Reedus would be heavily involved with the project. The situation soon turned sour, however. Kojima and his staff were let go after Konami had suddenly decided to start restructuring their business. Guillermo del Toro then explained to San Francisco Film Society attendees that Silent Hills had been cancelled. The very next day, Konami announced that PT would then be pulled from the PlayStation Store and then issued an official statement confirming the cancellation of Silent Hills. All hope is not lost, however, as the same press release stated that despite the cancellation, the Silent Hill franchise would continue. Konami stuck to their word, and in August of 2015, unveiled the official Silent Hill Pachinko Machine.
Did you know? In the original Fatal Frame, leaving the controller idle for about 5 minutes will make a swarm of bloody handprints appear on the screen. Similar easter eggs are also present in Fatal Frame 2, 3, and 4, where ghosts appear on screen after around 5 minutes of idle gameplay. Initially, Fatal Frame's developers wanted to create a completely new style of gameplay from the ground up. Because of this, the game's working title was Project Zero. The team was motivated by the success of previous horror games like Silent Hill, but they also worked to avoid the same problems these games faced. Uninteresting combat was one of these problems, as well as mechanics where the player would take damage any time they saw something terrifying. With Project Zero, the developers wanted to include a unique combat system that would force the player to look directly at the source of their fear, which ultimately led to the game's mechanic of attacking ghosts by taking pictures of them with a camera. The decision to make the player's main weapon a camera was inspired by historical superstitions that taking a picture of somebody could suck out their soul and trap it in the photograph. The final game was released in 2001 with the title Zero in Japan, and Fatal Frame in North America. It retained its working title Project Zero in Europe. While creating the atmosphere of the games, series director Makoto Shibata, a longtime fan of the occult, drew from his own history of paranormal experiences. Shibata said that he gravitated towards the horror genre because of his own tendency to see things that weren't actually there. He also described at least two experiences that have helped shape the design of the Fatal Frame series. One occasion was while he visited Mount Osore and heard the voices of a group of children playing in the forest. A woman who was walking nearby began crying and sobbing uncontrollably and Shibata himself fell to his knees and was unable to stand up. On another occasion he was visiting Tojimbo, an area of seaside cliffs, and found graffiti chiseled into the rock that reads, life is nothing but sadness, pain, and hatred. Upon reading the graffiti, Shibata felt himself being physically lifted up from behind. In both these cases, Shibata felt that he'd seen or heard something he wasn't meant to and had been brought close to death as a consequence. Some of the staff working on the game felt uncomfortable dealing with occult subject matter, and one person would even come into work wearing a protective charm. Producer Keisuke Kikuchi even attempted to organize the group for a purification ceremony to ward off curses, but Shibata shot the plans down. Later installments in the Fatal Frame series have often been collaborations between Tecmo and third-party developers. The fourth game in the series, released only in Japan as Zero, Tsukihami no Kamen, or Fatal Frame, Mask of the Lunar Eclipse, was developed for the Wii as a three-way collaboration between Tecmo, Nintendo, and Grasshopper manufacturer. However, Goichi Suda, the head of Grasshopper, almost turned down Tecmo's invitation to work on the game, saying, I don't like horror games. There's a very small chance I'll make horror games in the future. Interestingly, Grasshopper had previously worked on at least two horror games prior to Fatal Frame. The first was Michigan, Report from Hell, a survival horror game released in 2004 for the PlayStation 2. The second was a project revealed by Suda in an interview with Edge magazine in 2006, only two years before Mask of the Lunar Eclipse's release. The game went under the working title Kurayami and would be inspired by the writings of author Franz Kafka, with gameplay elements themed around light and darkness. This project took on many different forms before it finally saw release for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 in 2011 under the title Shadows of the Damned. Fatal Frame, Maiden of the Black Water, the fifth game in the series, was developed exclusively for the Wii U through a collaboration between Tecmo and Nintendo. The story of the game is set on Hikami Mountain, a fictional location based in part on Aokigahara, a real-life forest in Japan known for being the site of many suicides. According to Kikuchi, the idea of basing the game's world off of actual occult sites in Japan came from the higher-ups at Nintendo. The game was themed around water to show off the graphical power of the Wii U, but this decision was also based on Shibata's experiences. While visiting 
California in the summer, the dry heat made him feel that he wouldn't encounter any ghosts in the area. In an interview with Nintendo Life, Shibata explained, I think there needs to be a level of moisture in the air in order for ghosts to appear. If the humidity is high, it feels like you're surrounded by something larger than yourself. I realized that the water becomes an intermediary that connects you with the unseen. When the original Fatal Frame was released in the US, it was marketed with a tagline based on a true story. However, this tagline was not present on the Japanese versions of the game. In interviews, Shibata explained that the setting of Fatal Frame, the Himuro Mansion, was at least partially inspired by stories about a supposedly haunted mansion somewhere outside Tokyo. According to the story, the mansion was the site of multiple murders in the past. Photographs of the mansion would supposedly show a young girl standing in the window who wasn't there when the picture was taken, and people who had dared to enter the mansion were found dead with rope marks around their necks. Between the stories spread by the game's development team and the claim that the game was based on a true story, a belief spread among some players that the Himuro Mansion was actually a real place somewhere in Japan, and photos that claimed to show the inside of the mansion itself began to circulate on the internet. None of the information related to the photos or the story, however, has been verified, and it seems likely that the story of the real Himuro Mansion was either the result of a hoax or a misunderstanding. The Fatal Frame series has seen a number of changes made during the localization process. Miku, the heroine of the first game, had her appearance and clothing changed from that of a schoolgirl to a more mature look for the Western release. Fatal Frame, Maiden of the Black Water, originally featured several unlockable costumes based on swimsuits and lingerie for the main characters. These costumes were cut from the Western version and replaced with new costumes based on Samus Aran and Princess Zelda, but many Fatal Frame fans were upset by what they perceived as unfair censorship and lobbied Nintendo to release the uncut version in America. This was not the first time that fans of the series had a strong reaction to localization issues. Despite initial reports confirming a European release, Fatal Frame Mask of the Lunar Eclipse was never released outside of Japan. Colin Noga, a hacker and translator, decided to translate the game himself after a conversation with his girlfriend. He explained, It was looking pretty clear-cut that the translation had been cancelled. I'm not a big fan myself, but my girlfriend is. She mentioned it to me, and I thought, I wonder if I could do something about this. Noga teamed up with two other hackers named Clayton Ramsey and Ariel X, and the three began working together to create an unofficial English translation patch. The process involved translating the game's entire script, as well as the creation of numerous new assets, including more than 200 new images. To accomplish this, the team started a thread on an online message board where anyone could log on and assist in the translation process. The completed patch was released in 2010, two years after the game's original Japanese release. Did you know? The TurboGrafx-16 port of Splatterhouse had a parental advisory on the box stating the horrifying theme of this game may be inappropriate for young children and cowards. But the back of the box said the game was for ages 10 and up, implying that it was suitable for children. This wasn't the first time a game received a content warning, but it was one of the first for violence instead of sex. The Splatterhouse series made waves with its graphic violence and naturally has a long, interesting history with video game ratings systems. Splatterhouse 2 was released in 1992 before Sega of America started voluntarily raiding their games. However, the North American version did feature a warning on the cover that read, this game contains scenes depicting graphic violence which may not be suitable for younger players. It was the first North American game to have such a warning on the front as opposed to the back, like 1990's Technocop and Stormlord. 16 years later, when it was released on the North American Wii Virtual Console, Splatterhouse 2 would retroactively receive a mature rating, making it the only game with an M rating on Virtual Console. It's third 
third entry, Splatterhouse 3, which released after Sega started its voluntary rating system, was rated MA-13, which wasn't even Sega's highest maturity rating at the time. Yet, it still featured the same warning that it wasn't for kids. Games like Mortal Kombat 2 and Lethal Enforcers got the higher MA-17 rating, but without any extra warning. An ad for Splatterhouse 3 joked that it was the type of game rating systems were invented for, which was enough to get it featured in the violence in video games Senate hearings in December 1993. It includes deadly new weapons, six levels of monster bashing mayhem, and killer special moves. It's kind of incredible that this is the only mention Splatterhouse got in the hearing, considering it's a series that lets the player cut demon fetuses with a chainsaw. While the Splatterhouse series is of course violent, it's important to note that players never kill any people or humans in the series, at least none that aren't already possessed by otherworldly evil. There are five games in the Splatterhouse series, including Splatterhouses 1 through 3, the 2010 reboot, and Splatterhouse Wampaku Graffiti, a chibi spin-off for the Famicom. Wampaku, which literally means naughty or mischievous in Japanese, includes spoofs of American horror culture and some choice English dialogue like, be garbage of cesspool, ha 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 Though it remains the only major entry to never see release in the West, it must have impressed Namco as the game's developer, now Production Co., was given the keys to the series three years later for Splatterhouses 2 and 3. Splatterhouse has seen its fair share of voluntary censorship. The arcade version of the original Splatterhouse features a fight in a church and other religious imagery that was taken out of the TurboGrafx-16 port. The port also features less blood and gore, but that's more likely due to the graphical limitations of the console, as these changes are also present in the Japanese PC Engine version. Other differences include a reduced frame count for enemy animations, missing or compressed sound effects, and other minor gameplay differences. For example, the TurboGrafx Rick has a bigger hitbox, can hit enemies further back, and is rewarded two hearts after completing a level, instead of the arcade's single heart. The game was also ported to the little-known Japanese system, the FM Towns Marty, which is a near-arcade perfect port. It was also given a Tiger Electronic handheld port and an iOS port, which featured an exclusive endless mode called Splatter Rush. Though the Terror Mask is supposed to be a Mayan relic, it bears a striking resemblance to Jason Voorhees' mask in the Friday the 13th horror series. The TurboGrafx-16 port colored the mask red to help fend off copyright claims, but Namco wised up and made the mask more skull-like as the series progressed. And this isn't the only horror movie connection Splatterhouse has. The series has several intentional references to a handful of horror movies. Just to name a few, Laughing Deerheads in Wanpaku Graffiti and Vomiting Deerheads in Splatterhouse 2 reference Evil Dead 2. Wampaku Graffiti's first boss is a girl whose head spins around, referencing The Exorcist. The series' main antagonist, Dr. West, is named after Herbert West, a character in Stuart Gordon's reanimator. And in the 2010 reboot, a burnt corpse wearing a glove is seen along with a red and green sweater next to a boiler, referencing Freddy Krueger from A Nightmare on Elm Street. In 2008, Bandai Namco announced they were bringing back Splatterhouse with Rise of Kasai developers Bottle Rocket Entertainment. It was a full series reboot with 3D action gameplay in the style of God of War and Devil May Cry. It would even feature Jim Cummings as the voice of the Terror Mask and also have numerous references to the previous games, like a boss fight with Biggie Man, the dual chainsaw armed maniac. However, Bandai Namco fired the team in 2009 and finished the game themselves. A few Bottle Rocket developers joined Bandai Namco to help finish the project, and Bottle Rocket closed its doors in September 2009. When the Splatterhouse reboot finally dropped in November 2010 for the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3, it was 
met with a lukewarm reception, but has since gained a cult following. As a bonus, the reboot featured the original three games, including the fully uncensored version of the arcade original. This is the first time the game was given a wide release in America, but it wouldn't be the last, as it was also featured in the recent Namco Museum for Switch, which was only rated teen. In 2013, Caitlin Oliver became the first woman to set a world record high score for a classic arcade game in nearly 30 years, and her game of choice was Splatterhouse. The previous record was set by Doris Self for Qbert in 1984. Though numbers are vague, Splatterhouse arcade machines were not common in the US during its heyday, probably because of its graphic violence. The international version is pretty rare. The Japanese version is reportedly more common. While there were decades between the third game and the 2010 remake, Splatterhouse cameos made their way into Bandai Namco games throughout the years, like in Point Blank 3, Tekken Dark Resurrection, and Tales of Eternia. Some cutscenes from We Love Katamari feature a remake of the Splatterhouse 1 ending theme, which itself is a video game rendition of the song Sinto Nel Core by Italian Baroque composer Alessandro Scarletti. Katsuro Tajima, who did the original music for Splatterhouse 1, was also a composer on We Love Katamari. Bandai Namco released this version on the official soundtrack for the PSP's Me and My Katamari, which is called Katamari Original Soundtrack Damacy, or Complete Sounds of Katamari, depending on the retailer or the translator. Katsuro Tajima is credited as the composer of this track on that CD. And that's not the only connection between the two series. Now, Production Co. also developed 2007's Beautiful Katamari for the Xbox 360. Actually, Now Production Co. went on to become one of Japan's biggest contract developers and has been involved in many franchises with companies like Nintendo, Sega, Konami, Capcom, and Sony, the most prominent of these being Sonic, Adventure Island, Katamari Damacy, and of course, Splatterhouse. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.